Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing today? I have the uh, privilege of being back with you two weeks in a row. This is pretty cool. Wasn't expecting this, but got to fill in this week for Pastor Rick, who's been a little bit under the weather. So it's a real privilege to do that. You know, this, uh, this story series, as, uh, as we've been going through it, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the show American Pickers. You guys ever seen that show on TV? If you haven't seen it, the, the, the premise of the show is these guys basically travel around the country looking for old antique treasures, and they go into barns and old warehouses and storage facilities, and, and, uh, and the show is kind of frustrating sometimes for, for the viewers as well as for these guys because they walk into these awesome spots, and it's just full of great stuff, and they are only able to take a few things with them as, uh, as the show unfolds, and, and they leave all these great treasures behind. And I was telling Pastor Rick, preaching through this story series is a little bit like that experience that these guys on American Pickers have. You know, uh, We're looking at these huge sections of Scripture and some really awesome stories. And uh, just in the video we saw, I mean, the video alone you just saw covers about a 200-year span of history. And so we're trying to find these little gems, these little nuggets of uh, inspiration from the Lord to, uh, to hopefully encourage us in our own walk with Him. Well, we'll hopefully do that this morning as we continue on. I want to begin by sharing a story with you that may be familiar to all of you here this morning. On the evening of April 14, 1912, the RMS Titanic raced through the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Having been hailed as the greatest ocean vessel ever built, and having been declared the unsinkable ship, the captain of the Titanic was determined to set a new transatlantic speed record. And so he had ordered the crew to maintain a very aggressive course and speed. Late into the evening, as the Titanic steamed through the darkness, the radio operators on the Titanic received a warning from an ocean liner ahead of them that they were headed towards a dangerous ice field. Well, unfortunately, because these radio operators were busy sending messages back to Europe for the wealthy passengers on board the ship, these radio operators ignored this initial warning. They never mentioned it to the captain. A few hours later, a radio operator from another ship ahead of the Titanic sent another message to them, warning them, again, that they were headed for this dangerous ice field. However, the radio operators were still in the process of transmitting their messages for the passengers. And so one of the Titanic's radio operators sent back a terse response via Morse code that simply said, shut up, shut up, I am busy. Well, you all know the rest of the story. The sinking of the Titanic has gone down as one of the great maritime tragedies of history. Over 1,500 people lost their lives, all because of unheeded warnings. You know, what is it, friends, that causes us to ignore warnings until it's too late? Well, today, as we return to our journey through the story, which is God's story of his plan of salvation for the world, we're reminded that in the people of Israel, we see a dramatic example of the dangers inherent in failing to heed God's warnings. You may recall that throughout the story so far, we've seen how God had made covenants with the people of Israel. 
at various times throughout their history. And these covenants essentially declared the point I highlighted in my sermon last week. That God honors those who are faithful to him, but will remove his blessings from those who are unfaithful. Well, time and time again throughout the story, throughout the history of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, we see God's people repeatedly falling into sin and failing to honor God faithfully. However, because of God's great love for his people, and because of God's grace, God had sent them numerous messengers to warn the Israelites that they were headed for a disaster if they did not change course and repent of their sins and turn to him. And yet, they repeatedly ignored God's warnings. In recent weeks, we've seen how God had sent the prophets Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea to warn the people of Israel. Last week, we saw how God sent the prophet Isaiah warning the Israelites and how God would ultimately bring judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel as they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And then the southern kingdom of Judah barely escaped the same fate, except for the divine intervention of the Lord who sent the angel of the Lord to wipe out the Assyrian army. Now, friends, you would think that with all the warnings God had sent them, and with the northern kingdom gone, and the southern kingdom of Judah almost gone, escaping only because of the supernatural intervention of God, you would think the remaining Israelites would have got the message and turned back to God. But they didn't. They didn't. Like the Titanic, the southern kingdom of Judah continued to race headlong towards disaster. Last week, we left off the story by mentioning how godly King Hezekiah was succeeded by his son Manasseh. And Manasseh would come to be the most evil king in Judah's history. Manasseh was the exact opposite of his father. Second Chronicles 33 reports, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he led the people of Judah into a period of great sin. Manasseh reinstituted idol worship and built altars to pagan gods, even within the temple in Jerusalem, essentially thumbing his nose at the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. He publicly worshipped those gods and encouraged the people of Judah to do the same. Instead of consulting God for wisdom, we're told that Manasseh sought the counsel of sorcerers and mediums, a practice expressly forbidden by God. Manasseh was so wicked, he even threw one of his own sons into the fire as a sacrifice to one of these pagan gods. And so 2 Chronicles 33, 10 and 11 tells us that ultimately, because of his evil ways, and since Manasseh wouldn't listen to God's warnings, God's patience finally ran out. Scriptures tell us the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. The mighty king, who once thought himself too big for God, now sat in a dark, dirty dungeon. True God of Israel, who he'd repeatedly rejected, finally took him out. 
You know, friends, it's like I shared last week. God's holiness can only tolerate open rebellion and sin for so long. It truly is a dangerous thing to test the patience of our holy God. And unfortunately for many people, like Manasseh, for many people it's not until they experience the despair of the full consequences of their sins that they realize the error of their ways. Now, as is often true with the big picture of God's story, there's a positive lesson that we can learn from Manasseh's life as well. You see, God had finally got his attention. As a prisoner in Babylon, 2 Chronicles 33, 12-13 reports, in his distress he sought the favor of the Lord and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Second Chronicles 33, 14-20 then reports that Manasseh returned to Jerusalem. And for the remainder of his life, he worshipped God and worked to undo all of the idolatry that he had brought into Judah. See, friends, the positive lesson we can learn from Manasseh's life is that while God is holy and will not tolerate open rebellion for long, God is also a God of grace and love. And as 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, friends, God's greatest desire is for reconciliation and relationships with his creation. This is the grace and love of God that's as much a part of his nature as his holiness and justice. And this is why in Scripture we see God warns, and then he waits, and then he warns again before he finally acts in judgment. And even when God does act in judgment, he is still quick to forgive, turn repentance to him. And here in the story of Manasseh, we see the incredible extent of God's grace, where even one of the most wicked men in history could finally turn, turn to God, repent of his sins, and God forgives for him. Isn't that awesome? You know, my friends, if you ever had any doubts as to if God could forgive you, maybe you've thought, I'm just too far gone. I've done too many wicked things for God to ever love me again. You know, if that's what you think about yourself, the story of Manasseh is a powerful testimony to the overwhelming love and grace of God. No one, friends, beyond the unfathomable love of our great God. No one. If you'll just reach out to him, confess your sins, and declare your need for him, God will welcome you. He will embrace you with a love that's greater than anything you've ever known. Because that is who God is. Now, one of the important truths we need to recognize out of this whole experience with Manasseh 
is that while God will enthusiastically welcome and forgive anyone with a repentant heart, the sad fact remains that our sins have lasting consequences. And this is another one of the big reasons why God warns us to flee from sin and to stay faithful in following Him. Because God knows that our sin not only damages our relationships with Him, but our sin is messy. And sin often spills over and makes a mess on others around us as well. And even when we've experienced forgiveness and reconciliation with God, the mess that our sins create often remains. It remains in the form of damaged relationships, broken trust, tarnished reputations, legacies of sin and rebellion within our families, many other consequences. See, friends, God knows what he's talking about when he calls us to follow him faithfully. He knows that our rebellion isn't just an issue between he and us, but it has far-reaching consequences that we don't often consider until it's too late. And here in the story of Manasseh and the kingdom of Judah, we see the lasting consequences of the mess that Manasseh's sin has created. For example, when Manasseh died, his son Ammon succeeded him as king. And 2 Kings 21, 20 through 21 tells us that Ammon didn't follow in the ways of the repentant Manasseh, but instead he followed the example that his father had set for him over the majority of his lifetime. The scriptures report of Ammon. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways of his father. He worshipped the idols his father had worshipped bowed down to them. Things eventually got so bad in Judah under Ammon's leadership that his own officials assassinated him just two years into his rule. Do you see what's happened here, friends? One generation's sin has spilled over into the next. And even though Manasseh eventually straightened out his own life, his son ultimately embraced the example of sin he had seen over the majority of Manasseh's lifetime. You know, friends, this story should be a wake-up call to all of us. The next generation is watching, and they're learning from our example, for good or for bad. And the principle we need to see in this story is that our choice, whether we'll honor God and follow him faithfully in all areas of our lives. This choice has implications beyond just us. It will play a huge role in influencing our children, and our nation, and even our world. This is why God tells us in Proverbs 22.6, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And friends, this training happens not only through the words we speak, but also through our actions and what our kids observe in our lives. Now, it's important to recognize that individuals are ultimately responsible for our own choices, and our kids are no exception. 
You know, I'm sure all of us know examples of godly parents who did everything right, and yet their kids still chose to stray from God's ways. So please understand, friends, this proverb isn't a magic pill, nor is it a guarantee of faithfulness in future generations. But I will guarantee you, if we fail to heed this teaching, if we fail to honor the Lord in our own lives, we are definitely setting up the next generation for failure. Now, fortunately for the kingdom of Judah, even though Ammon didn't follow the example of the repentant Manasseh, Ammon's son did. When Ammon was murdered, his son Josiah became the next king of Judah. And Josiah was a godly king. He had learned from the mistakes of his grandfather and father. Josiah ruled Judah for 31 years. And 2 Chronicles 34.1 reports that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 34 goes on to describe how Josiah continued removing all the remnants of idolatry that remained from earlier in Manasseh's reign. He also found the book of the law, which had been lost for 55 years during the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. And he publicly read God's covenants to the people of Judah and challenged them to recommit their lives to everything in the book of the law. You know, imagine that, friends. God's people had had no scriptures to guide them for over 55 years. 55 years without God's word. No wonder they got themselves into so much trouble. King David had once declared in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Friends, do you think knowing God's word is important to living a life that honors him, to living a life of faithfulness? You better believe it is. It's crucial. God's word is like a road map or the GPS system that guides us safely through life. It leads us into God's will. It helps us to avoid the detours and the pitfalls and the roadblocks that the enemy puts in our path to try to lead us astray and derail us. And just like it would be foolish to set out on a long road trip without consulting your map or to turn off your GPS system as you pull out of your driveway, so too is it foolish to ignore God's word, which leads to life and life to the full. Well, Josiah was a godly king, and he led Israel, or Judah, for 31 years of peace and prosperity. And 2 Chronicles 34, 33 says, As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. Friends, what was the difference between Judah under Josiah's reign and their experience under the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon? The difference, friends, is they had rediscovered God's word. And they followed it faithfully. See, friends, the truth is, this incredible book contains the words that lead to life and life to the full. And following God's guidance within the scriptures make all the difference. 
But as was so often the case with the Israelites, when Josiah died, the people of Judah reverted to their old ways. And once again, it was ungodly leadership that took them there. Second Chronicles 36 says the following about Judah's final kings. In verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, Jehoiakim was 18 when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verses 11 and 12, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, are you starting to pick up a pattern here these last two weeks? Ungodly leadership, failure to heed God's words, Nations that quickly descend into chaos. These things matter, friends. And they still matter today. We're looking at spiritual principles here in the story that have real implications for our world, for our lives. And as we saw last week and in our various examples today, God's grace and patience will only tolerate sin and open rebellion for so long. God had given the southern kingdom of Judah numerous opportunities to repent. He had sent them prophets warning them that they were headed towards disaster. He had delayed his judgment with the reigns of godly king Hezekiah and Josiah. But with the wickedness that these final three kings had brought into Judah, God's patience had finally run out. 2 Chronicles 36, 15-20 tells us what then took place. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. And spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or age. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Verse 16 here says that God's patience had finally run out, and there was no remedy. And so in 586 B.C., God used the Babylonian Empire as his instrument of judgment against the nation of Judah, and they were carried off into exile. All of Israel has now been lost. The northern kingdom of Israel is completely gone, lost for all of history. The southern kingdom of Judah now appears to be on the verge of extinction as well. But remember, friends, God is the one writing this story. And he is faithful. And as I reminded us last week, God had promised that through the nation of Judah, his Messiah would come. And so God's plans for Judah weren't finished just yet. During the period of these final evil kings of Israel, 
prior to the exile, two of the prophets God had sent to warn the Israelites were named Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And as we just read, both of these prophets were mocked, scoffed, and despised, and they would both experience tremendous trials as a result of their calling to warn the people of Israel. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, as scriptures recount his grief over Judah's sin and their rejections of God's warnings. He also authored the Bible's book of Lamentations, a book of lament and mourning over Jerusalem's destruction and the exile of Judah. Jeremiah would eventually spend the end of his life in Egypt as a fugitive of the Babylonian occupation of Judah. Ezekiel faced possibly the greatest personal loss of all the prophets, as his wife, whom scriptures describe as the delight of Ezekiel's eyes, passes away on the very day of Jerusalem's destruction. God had prophesied to Ezekiel that he was going to take her life as a symbol of the mourning that would come upon Judah at the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel himself was then exiled with the rest of Judah and spent the remainder of his life as a captive in Babylon. Make no mistake, friends, there was nothing glamorous about being called to be one of God's prophets. But while these prophets' experiences were bleak, both of these men also were used by God to share powerful messages of hope with God's people. Though their city had been destroyed and their nation exiled, God used Jeremiah and Ezekiel to remind his people that he was still in control. He was the one writing this story. And what seemed like the end of Israel and Judah was really the beginning of something even greater. God was going to write some new chapters in their story. Chapters that would contain promises of hope, not only for them, but for us as well. In Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, God gave this message of hope to his exiled people. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28, God promised his people that salvation was coming. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God.
You know, friends, God's people here were in their darkest days. They were in the depths of despair. And I can imagine that many of them probably felt as if God had completely abandoned them. Can you imagine how these words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel must have gripped their hearts? To hear from the Lord that the time was coming, that he hadn't forgotten about them, and that they would come home. Friends, how many people today long to hear God's loving invitation to come home? The reality is, like the Israelites, we are all exiles. And we all long to connect with our Creator and find our way home. And the good news today, friends, is God is eager to forgive and restore us too, if we'll just turn to Him. Now, since I began my message this morning with a Titanic story, I thought I might as well finish one with one too. It's a true story about a passenger on board the Titanic whose name was John Harper. And no, he didn't win his ticket in a poker game, and he didn't spend his time flirting with Kate Winslet. But John Harper's story is true. He was there, and he had the one thing that the Titanic was lacking. He was prepared for tragedy. Coming on board in Southampton, John made his way to his second-class cabin. Being a widower, his only companion was Nan, his six-year-old daughter. They had booked to travel a week earlier on the SS Lusitania, but circumstances changed, so they delayed their journey. Until 11.40 p.m., Sunday night, April 14th, we know nothing of how John Harper spent his time, apart from the words, thus far the passage is all that can be desired, sent in a letter when the Titanic stopped in Queenstown, Ireland. But from that moment, the iceberg was struck until 2.20 a.m. of the 15th when the ship slipped slowly beneath the waves. We know of at least three things that happened. First of all, Mr. Harper passed little Nan to a deck officer asking that she be put in the care of those being lowered away in a lifeboat. Nan survived and died at the age of 80 in 1986. Secondly, he gave his life jacket to a fellow passenger, hoping that he would survive the disaster that was unfolding. Thirdly, John treaded water as long as he could, urging others in the freezing dark water to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ before it was too late. How do we know these things? Sometime later, a man stood to his feet in a church in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and said, I was John Harper's last convert. And he went on to tell the story. You won't find mention of John Harper in most accounts of the Titanic tragedy, which is understandable, because his is a story of triumph. As Jesus once said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. My friends, if you're here this morning and you've been ignoring God's warnings in your own life, maybe you've hit the iceberg and you feel like you're drowning in the freezing waters of a life lived far too long on your own terms. Maybe you're here this morning and you're frightened, confused, 
worn out, lonely, and you're longing for someone to throw you a lifeline. If that's where you're at today, friends, I'm here to tell you that God loves you. You are precious in his sight. And there is hope. Your life need an end in tragedy, friend. Yours, too, can be a story of triumph if you'll just put your trust in the God who saves and his lifeline, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, while we mourn over the hardships that our spiritual ancestors had to go through to learn these difficult lessons, we also thank you, God, for sharing these stories with us and the powerful truths that they contain. God, I just pray that each one of us here would heed the warnings and the challenges and the encouragements found here in your word. That we would learn from the mistakes of our spiritual ancestors, God, and that we would honor you faithfully in all areas of our lives. Because you are worthy. You are worthy. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and love. And not only do you warn us when we're headed for disaster, Lord, but you have provided a way of salvation for us. When you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be saved when we turn to you, when we confess our sins and repent and declare our need for you. Your love, God, is unfathomable. Your grace, your forgiveness, it's amazing. Lord Jesus, I know that there may be somebody here today who is struggling. Struggling in their life because maybe they've veered off course. Maybe they realize they're headed for disaster. Maybe they've already hit the iceberg in their own lives. And they know that they need you. They need the hope that is found in you. Lord, if there's somebody here today whether somebody who's put their faith in you in the past but has failed to live faithfully for you, or maybe somebody here who has never put their trust in you and had a relationship with you. Lord, regardless, I just pray, if there is anybody here today who recognizes their need for you, that they've gone off course somewhere in their life, Lord, that they might this morning call upon you and say, Jesus, I need you. I acknowledge my mistakes, my errors, my sins. God, I need to get my life back on the right course. And I need you. I need your grace and your love. Friends, if you'll just call out to Jesus Christ, he knows your heart. And you speak to him honestly and admit your need for him. God will forgive you because that is who he is. We thank you, Lord Jesus for your grace and your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.